everybody. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. And today, as promised, we are going over how to do a head-to-toe assessment. So when you're taking your skills labs and you're practicing on patients in the hospital, your head-to-toe assessment is going to take like 10 or 15 minutes. I promise you will get much faster at doing these. And one of the reasons is because in a lot of cases, you'll be doing more of a focused assessment and then really drilling down into the body system that is causing your patient the most trouble. Like for instance, a really focused cardiovascular assessment or a really focused neuro assessment, which could take a while. But today we're just going to talk about a basic head-to-toe assessment for your patient who's come in for a common problem. Let's say they've got a pneumonia or something like that. So you're going to do a basic head-to-toe assessment on this person with a little more attention on the lungs. So the first thing that you're going to do in your head-to-toe with your patient is level of consciousness. So you can actually get a ton of assessment data just from talking with your patient and observing them. So it's not like you're doing this really formal, now I'm going to ask you orientation questions kind of thing. I go in, I start talking with my patient, I'll sneak in questions that assess their level of consciousness. So why'd you come, you know, why'd you come here today and see if they know that they're in a hospital, see if they know why they're there. But if you wanted to be super thorough, which you do have to be for your checkoff, the things you're going to ask them is, tell me your name. Do you know where you are? Do you know what month it is? And do you know why you're here? If they can answer all of those questions, we say they are oriented times four. A lot of times people will be iffy on the month. So sometimes we'll ask about the year, especially if it's like, you know, September 30th, and they think it's already October, you know, so sometimes if especially if they've been out of it for a few days, I think asking the month is a little bit unfair. So I might ask the year or I might ask the season or I might say what holiday is coming up something a little bit more general. You want to assess how awake and alert they are. Were they bright eyed and bushy tailed when you walked into the room? Or did you have to wake them? Was it easy to wake them, just like you're waking your husband or your friend at home? Or did you have to shake them? Did you have to shout? Did you have to do a sternal rub? How awake did they get? Did they wake up and stay awake? Or did they wake up and then immediately go back to their somnolence? So you're assessing that. You want to also make sure that they can follow simple commands. So Again, this is something that you can sneak in. It doesn't have to be so formal as I'm going to have you now follow commands. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Make a fist. Show me a thumbs up. Of course, if you're doing a neuroassessment, which we'll do a podcast on neuroassessment, you will get that granular. But if I'm just assessing a normal person's ability to follow commands, you know, open your mouth so I can take your temperature. That's following a command. Hold your arm up so I can get this blood pressure cuff on a little better. That's seeing if they can follow commands. 
I'm also looking at their pupils. So you always want to look at people's pupils. You definitely want to have a baseline. Not everyone's pupils are the same. If they've had cataract surgery, their pupils are going to be maybe a little oddly shaped. So you definitely want to know if they do have a neuro change later and you are looking at their pupils, you want to know if, wow, this is different. Their pupils were the same size before. Now that one's definitely bigger. This is a change for them. So check their pupils. They usually have people, I say, show me your pretty eyes or something like that. And they like that and they open their eyes up and I can check out their pupils, shine a quick little light in there and see how well they uh, react to light as well. So you're also going to be gauging the pupil size. You can get one of those handy pen lights with the little um, dots on the side. So you can just get familiar with what two millimeters looks like, what three millimeters looks like, etc. When you shine your little light, you want to watch for a brisk reaction or a sluggish reaction or non-reaction. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but it can. Um, you also want to assess your patient's strength. So just real quick, have them squeeze your hands, um, press their feet against your hands. Just do a quick little motor strength. You're going to do a way more intense neuro exam on someone who says had a stroke. But for your basic, generally ill person, squeeze hands, push against my hands with your feet. You can get an idea of their motor strength. Obviously, if you walk in the room and they're, and they're up out of bed brushing their teeth, their motor strength is probably pretty good. Observe how they move and you can get a lot of information. Um, you also want to look at what kind of motor movement they have. Is it purposeful? Is your patient reaching for their water glass, taking a drink? Are they flailing about in bed with no purpose? Are they intubated but reaching strongly for their ET tube when you take the restraints and loosen them up? You can get a lot of information about their movement by noticing if it is purposeful. You can also, um, if your patient does have a neurological injury, then of course you're going to look at decortigate and decerebrate posturing, which we will go over in more detail when we talk about a neuroassessment. So that's kind of the basics for your quick neuroassessment. Like I said, a lot of that you can glean just from going in at the start of the shift, introducing yourself and observing how they answer, how they respond and how they move. So then because it is a head to toe, I go straight down. And the next thing that I assess is lungs. Um, before you pull out your stethoscope, I want you to look at your patients. So whenever you're doing an assessment, you're using your eyes, your hands, your ears, your nose sometimes. So I want you to think about using all of those tools as you're doing your head to toe assessment. So when it comes to respiratory, you're going to look at your patient. You're going to observe how they're breathing. Are they huffing and puffing? Are they um, using those intercostal muscles? Can you see sternal retractions? Um, listen. Without your stethoscope, listen to how they're breathing. You can get an idea. Are they only able to speak in three-word sentences? Are they wheezing so loud you don't even need a stethoscope? Are they coughing a lot? Are they producing phlegm? So look, listen, now grab your stethoscope and listen to those breath sounds. You know, are they clear? Are they diminished? Are they wet? Do you hear crackles? Do you hear rails? Do you hear ronchi? Like what do you hear when you listen with your stethoscope? 
And you also just want to observe their response. Are they tired? Is their breathing labored? At that point, I would check out their uh, O2 sat, see what that is. Are they on oxygen? How much oxygen? Is it the appropriate amount of oxygen? If they're on a nasal cannula at two liters and their sat is 100%, I'll usually say, let's take this off and see how you do. Chances are they're going to probably be just fine without it. So just using all of your tools and looking at all parts of that respiratory assessment. So how fast are they breathing? Not what the monitor says, but how fast are they really breathing? Those monitors are notorious for picking up extra movement, not picking up actual breaths just because of lead placement. So actually count your patient's breaths. And, you know, if they're breathing normally, Technically, you can get by with counting for 15 and multiplying by 4. You'll probably be more accurate, though, if you count for 30 and multiply by 2. Look at their pattern. Are they having periods of apnea? More common when they're sleeping, but you can assess for that. Are they having a, uh, like, Kussmaul respirations? Let's say they're in diabetic ketoacidosis, and the first time you guys see Kussmaul respirations in person, you'll be like, oh, that's what that is. And then from then on, whenever you see it, you'll be like, oh yeah, that patient must be in DKA. I can tell by the way they're breathing. It's very distinctive. Are they uh, a neuro patient who's had a severe neurological insult? Maybe they're having Shane Stokes breathings. So just kind of looking at their pattern. You also want to look at the depth of the breathing. Are they shallow breaths? Are they full breaths? Are they in pain, so they're just taking little baby breaths. See if you can figure out if there's a barrier to them coughing and deep breathing. You want to look for um, are they having to breathe through their mouth? A lot of times we'll see patients kind of it's it's like a gasping for breath. Even when they're on the ventilator, they'll still do it, and it's an air hunger kind of breath that is indicative of very poor oxygenation. You'll look for nostril flaring, um, the patient looking exhausted, anything out of the ordinary. And then, of course, your breath sounds, as I mentioned, you know, clear, diminished, wheezes. Are they inspiratory or expiratory? Are there ronchi? Are there crackles? Are there, is there strider? Do you hear a plural friction rub? Like all these different things that you can hear. And I found that one of the best ways to learn what different breath sounds are like, well, the very best thing is to listen to as many patients, sizes, shapes, ages, disease processes as you can, and then um, also just go online and do a Google search for what does a plural friction rub sound like? I bet you can find all kinds of resources for that. So just getting that kind of in your library resource library in your brain of what different lung sounds are like. You'll also want to look for subcute emphysema on patients that have chest tubes. So part of your respiratory assessment is assessing your chest tube. And we should probably do a whole podcast about chest tubes because they're very interesting. And um, it's good to review all the troubleshooting and chest tube safety stuff that you have to do. But if they do have a chest tube, you want to check for subcute air. And you can feel that 
under the skin. It feels like Rice Krispies under the skin or that bubble wrap under the skin. So definitely feel for that. If you notice it, the best thing to do is take your Sharpie and trace where it ends so that you can easily determine how far that sub-Q emphysema has spread. And then again, I talked about, are they coughing? You want to check for secretion. So if they're coughing, ask them if they're getting anything up. It's so gross, but you know, you might want to look at it. You can ask them, has it been clear? Has it been yellow? Has it been green? Has it been thick? Has it been cloudy? Um, Maybe they'll share it with you. Um, You can also, if they're intubated, you know, you can get a really clear idea what their secretions are as you suction them. So that is your respiratory assessment. And then you're going to look at their cardiovascular system. And with that, I, I like to look at how well they're perfusing, first of all. So one of the ways you can do that is you can look at their skin color, which kind of falls under skin assessment as well. But you want to look at their skin color. You know, are they pink? Is their oxygen being shuttled around the system as it should be? Or are they pale or are they mottled? Heaven forbid. If they're mottled, they're very, very sick. Is there any cyanosis notable around the the lips is one of the first places where you'll kind of see a cyanosis. So taking note of their, their perfusion of their skin signs, then you'll want to look, listen, feel, right? So you've looked at their skin signs. You've, um, you're looking for edema as well when you're assessing cardiovascular. So, you know, look for edema, namely dependent edema is what you're going to see. You're going to listen with your stethoscope at their heart sounds. You're listening for that S1, S2. I've only heard an extra heart sound once that I can recall because it was so, it was such a drastic change. The patient didn't have one at the beginning of my shift. And then midway through the shift, they did. And she was very sick. Um, so that was kind of interesting to find. You know, are their heart sounds distant? Are they muffled? Are you hearing anything out of the ordinary, uh, like a murmur or again, an extra heart sound like an S3 or an S4? You want to feel their pulses. Um, You want to feel for a radial is the most common along with the dorsalis pedis and the posterior tibials. So feel those three. Feel for regularity. If you want to be super thorough, you can listen at the apex as you feel and just note that they match up. You want to check for the quality of that pulse. Is it normal? Is it really, really strong and bounding, they call it? Or is it very weak? So you will um, also make note of the pulse characteristics. And then you are going to look for, um, looking at the veins, you're looking for venous distension, like jugular distension or uh, venous insufficiency, You can look at the legs, you can look for peripheral vascular disease signs, arterial vascular disease signs, things like that. You could also, if they have a fistula and they're on dialysis, you want to check for a brewy and a thrill. So you feel a thrill, okay? So you're going to feel it, feels like a vibration under the fingers, and then you hear 
a brewery and it's like a whooshing sound that you can hear with your stethoscope. Another part of your cardiovascular assessment is your heart rate and your blood pressure. Of course, you recall that a normal heart rate is 60 to 100, and you want to also look for regularity. Are they a normal sinus rhythm, or are they having an arrhythmia of some kind? And along with that, you will want to get a blood pressure and determine if they're within range, too high or too low, and how their heart rhythm could be contributing to that. For instance, if they're in a brand new AFib, you may notice them being hypotensive because they've lost atrial kick, which is about 25% of cardiac output. If they're really tachycardic, they're not getting uh, full filling time, so they may have a drop in blood pressure then. If they're bradycardic, they may have a drop in blood pressure. So you just want to kind of look at that set of vital signs and see how it correlates with everything else that you're seeing. Then I move on down to the belly. You're going to look, listen, and feel here as well. You're going to look at the belly. How does it look? Is it rounded? Is it flat? Is it concave? Which it never is. Is it distended? You want to listen with your stethoscope to all four quadrants. And in order to classify a bowel sound as absent, you have to listen to it for two to five minutes, each quadrant, which is a really, really, really long time. So you always hope that you can hear a little bit of something and classify them as normoactive or even hypoactive. But to really classify someone as no bowel sounds, you have to listen for a good long while, turn the TV off, ask them not to talk and really listen, especially if this patient is high risk for something like ischemic bowel, you want to make sure that you're calling the surgeon based off solid assessment data and not just a guess that their bowel sounds are absent. And then you'll palpate the abdomen. You're looking for tenderness in any of those quadrants. You're also looking for firmness. A taut, firm abdomen is a very bad sign. It signifies a possible peritonitis. So you definitely need to get in there and touch your patients. They may have a peg tube in place. If they do, this would be the time to assess that peg tube and, again, assessing their pain. Even if you um, palpating can often bring on pain, but even without the palpating, ask them if they're having having pain overall, and then you want to ask them about abdominal pain or their bowel habits and if they're able to pass flatus and um, how their appetite has been, etc. So that would be your basic abdominal assessment. And then moving on down to genitourinary, if they've got a Foley catheter, you will assess that catheter, make sure that it is patent and working. You can assess the color of the urine, the clarity. Is it clear and yellow? Is it dark and cloudy? Is there sediment? Is there blood? All of those things that you'll want to assess. Um, How much urine are they making? What did they average overnight? What does it look like they're averaging now? Are they making enough? Are they not making any? Are they on dialysis and are completely anuric? 
doing a urine assessment is key. Um, just also making note of how they void. Do they have a catheter? Do they use the urinal? Do they get up to the bedside commode? All of those things. And then I will take um, a good look at their skin. You want to look at the, you know, as you've been going along and touching your patient, you're looking at their skin the whole time. But make note of the temperature. Are they hot, warm, cold? Maybe they're uh, centrally warm, but their periphery, their hands and feet are cold. You want to make note of that. Maybe they have some, um, the, you know, peripheral vascular disease or poor perfusion. So their hands and feet might be cold. You want to notice if they're note if they're dry, if they're clammy, uh, diaphoretic, any of those things. Again, with the color, which kind of goes along with your cardiovascular assessment, but also like if they're jaundiced, okay, that's going to be part of your GI assessment if they have jaundice, um, pallor, pink, flushed, red, etc. You also will check skin turgor. That's to note if their skin has that nice elasticity, will tell you if they are dehydrated. Very easy way to tell if someone is dehydrated. And then you want to get them turned on their side so you can look at their skin on their back, including their bottom, and make sure that no pressure ulcers are developing. And if they do have any wounds anywhere on their body, you want to make note of them. If they're not in the chart, you want to make sure they're charted. If they are discovered, by you, you are the one who puts it in the chart and takes the photo as well. You also want to make note of the nail beds. You're looking for clubbing. You're looking for um, their color. Are they pink or are they dusty? And then that cap refill, which I should have mentioned under cardiovascular assessment, but giving the, a quick press onto the tips of the fingers and watching for that capillary refill to be generally less than three seconds is your goal. And then we talked a little bit about edema when we talked about cardiovascular. So as I'm moving on down the body and I'm kind of down at the legs, and this is the main place where you'll see edema is in the legs and then more in the ankles and then more in the feet. So you want to check for that one plus, you know, that kind of trace or that two plus, that mild or that three plus, that moderate four plus severe edema. So it, it goes from uh, zero up to, I believe four might be the highest number. And you're looking for that pitting edema. Now, some people will be so edematous and their skin's so taut that it doesn't really pit, but they're still edematous. So you can just make a note of that when you are charting that. And then, of course, you want to ask them about pain. If it came up when you were doing other parts of your assessment, that's fine. If it hasn't, you want to ask them, what is your pain level? Where is your pain? What is the quality of the pain? Where does it radiate? What makes it worse? What makes it better? All of those things, you want to determine for them what their pain measurement tool will be. Are they going to use the 0 to 10 scale? Are they going to use the faces where they point to the picture with the faces? Are they intubated and sedated so you're using maybe a CPOT score? Are they um, a person with dementia so maybe you're going to use the ANPS score? All of those different ways to score pain. You want to pick one and then try to stick with the same one throughout your shift. So you want to ask about pain, find out what works for them to treat pain, 
and then be open about what their pain treatment options are for the day and find out what their comfort level is. If someone says their comfort level is zero pain, then they need a little education about how that's not feasible and not a realistic expectation. You're never going to be without any pain unless you're perfectly healthy and just running around. But if you're in the hospital and you're laying in bed, you're going to have some general discomfort just from laying in bed. If you've had surgery, you're going to have pain because they cut into your insides and rearranged things. So usually what I tell people is, what pain level can you feel like you can still take deep breaths and move around in bed or even get out of bed? And they'll usually say, oh, between a three and a five is typically what I'll hear. Find out if their pain is acute or chronic. If they say, oh, I have my back really hurts, I will say, does your back, do you have chronic back pain? Does it always feel like this? And often they'll say, yeah, usually I do have chronic back pain and it's usually about a five and right now it's about a six, etc. So just find out what's normal for them and what they um, will accept as their comfort level. So again, like I said at the beginning, your head-to-toe assessment, when you're first learning how to do these, it's going to take a long time. As you get faster, you really will start to go through them pretty quickly. And as you develop your nursey sense or your spidey sense, as I call it, you'll, you'll know where you need to spend more time versus doing um, kind of the basics in all the other areas, but maybe you're going to do a super focused neuro exam, or you're going to do a super focused cardiovascular exam. Getting a feel for that, you guys will get really efficient at doing your head to toe assessments. I remember when I was a student, of course, I wanted to be Miss Thorough, and I thought that we, everyone was really thorough. And I had a patient that I was taking care of and I went in and I did my head to toe assessment and it took like 10 minutes, maybe longer. And he said, no one's done all of that before. And I've been here for days. And so I don't think that that's an excuse to not do a full head to toe assessment, but I was shocked to learn that not every patient gets a full head to toe assessment when they're in the hospital. So take the time, do a good head to toe. You will get faster at them, I promise. And if you have any tips to share, please go to the website, straightynursingstudent.com. There is a post on there about doing a head to toe assessment. So if you want to read more about it, if you go to the search function and type in head to toe, I'm 99% sure it would come up. You can leave your tips there or just read more about it. We will definitely do a podcast on neuroassessment because that is a whole other thing and really interesting and very subjective and probably one of the trickier assessments that you will ever do. And I guess that is it for today. I wanted to remind you guys that if you are new to the podcast and you haven't even found us through our website, check out straightanursingstudent.com. It is brimming with resources, tips, tricks, goodies all kinds of study aids that will help make nursing school not just bearable, but I would say actually enjoyable for you. And if you're a new student or you're a struggling student, you might want to check out the book I wrote just for you. It's called Nursing School Thrive Guide. 
and you can get that on Amazon. So you can go to the website and click on Thrive Guide Book, or you can go to Amazon and look for it directly. And I do know that I have some listeners who are nurse educators, and I just want to let all of you know that I do offer bulk discount pricing on the book. Several of you have emailed me about getting my book for your incoming classes, and I love that. So I just wanted to let others of you know that I do offer bulk pricing. If you just reach out to me, we can make arrangements for that. So take care, everyone, and keep doing what you're doing. You are doing absolutely great. So come back, check us out in a couple of weeks for the next episode of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.